Well, one more announcement before we get into the message. Uh, this is for men. Men, pay attention. October 13 to 15, there will be a men's retreat on Keats Island. And uh, the speaker is Dave Bentall. Dave Bentall is a wonderful speaker. He's written a book called The Company You Keep, The Transforming Power of Male Friendship. And so the intent of the weekend is to encourage men to walk with other men, to be intentional in their friendships, and to encourage each other to, to walk with God, to understand who they should be as men of God in our day. So, single, married, you are welcome. Um, if you are married, I hope your wife will encourage you to go, release you to go to that men's retreat. October 13 to 15, this is the last weekend that you can sign up, so do that after the service in the lobby. So, First Peter, who are we? This week I got an email. The, uh, I get quite a few emails every week, but this one was from Melania Trump. I found that interesting. It says, Dear, your parcel is with us here in Canada for your delivery. Uh, please provide your full name, your country, your mobile phone number, your correct home address, your next of kin, your age, your international passport, your occupation. Thanks. So I responded, and I'm, I'm waiting for my package. <laughs> I'm surprised she had time to write me this email because she's, uh, of course, representing the States at the Invictus Games. But anyways, we get emails like this, right? We live in an in- interesting time. Identity theft has been in the news this week. Um, you know, we're in a digital age, and people can access systems and retrieve our name, our social insurance number, our passport number, all of these details about us, credit card information. And these details are important, but they don't really define who we are. Everyone at some level will struggle with this uh, existential question, who am I? Who am I really? For people overly concerned with the opinions of others, this can be a rather painful question to ask. For those that feel that something core to their identity is being threatened by others, the conversation can get really sensitive. This need to know who we are or to be grounded in who we are and be accepted as we are, it's given rise to what's called identity politics. Identity politics. Identity politics refers to political positions that are are held uh, by social groups based on their interests, based on their perspectives. And so you will find these social groups to be based in race, uh, ethnicity, uh, religion, sexual orientation, veteran status. There's all kinds of identity politics going on in our world. And out of this comes a concern for political correctness. This is a huge value in Canadian society. I'll give you an example from America. I mentioned that American comedian last week, Michael Jr. He's African-American. So he says, you know, I'm not very good at being politically correct, but I recognize it when it's happening. And so he walks into a coffee shop, and there's a man in front of him. The person behind the counter says to the man in front of him, how would you like your coffee? And the man hesitates a bit and he says, African American. (laughs) So it's Michael Jr.'s turn. He's African American. He gets to the counter and the person behind the counter asks him, Sir, how would you like your coffee? And he says, Caucasian mocha. (laughs) 
So it's good when we can laugh about these things because sometimes the conversation is really sensitive. Identity politics, it encourages us to ask the question, who are we? You can tell that we're insecure in our identity when we're working really hard to establish it. So sometimes we work really hard to establish our identity through academic standing. That's what we think will secure our identity. Or professional success, or economic status, or social status, or even citizenship. Who are we? The core of who we are, the core of who we are is based on what we believe to be reality. You know, we all have a way of seeing the world, right? We have a worldview. And at the core of that worldview is what we believe to be real. So when I ask the question, what do you believe to be real? What's at the core of reality? You may say, God. If you're from another faith, you might say, well, the universal energy that binds all things. Or you might say, matter. What's at the core of reality? Based on what you believe to be real, you'll develop a belief system, a a set of beliefs, what you believe to be true. And based on what you believe to be true, you will value different things. You'll put importance on different things. And based on what you believe to be a value, that, that will just direct your behavior, the way you relate to people, where you place priority in life. So, obviously, if you think that professional success is what is important, that that is at the core of your identity, you'll give yourself completely to professional success. That will drive your life. Because you believe that that's at the foundation of who you are. Our identity is based on what we believe to be real. The main point of this message is is, is this. As followers of Jesus in the 21st century, our identity must be grounded in God and no one else, in God and his choosing. And my prayer is that at the end of this message, you'll understand what that means, to have our identity grounded in God and his choosing. If we understand what that means, we'll not only survive, not just hang on here in the 21st century, we will actually thrive and be a blessing. So let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, first chapter, First verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, that greeting is just packed with content, and we'll take some time to walk through it. First of all, the author of the letter is Peter. Peter knows whose he is. He knows whom he serves. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been authorized to be a witness to the meaning of Jesus' life. He understands that. How did he come to understand himself in this way? Peter's given name was Simon. His parents named him Simon. Jesus, when he called him in John chapter 1, 
John chapter 1, Jesus gives him a new name, Cephas. It's the Aramaic name for rock. It's translated into Greek as Peter. It's a prophetic word. It's a hopeful word that Peter will be a rock for the church. As he follows Jesus, as he responds to the call of Jesus in his life, as he walks with Jesus, he comes to an understanding of who he is in God and what his life purpose is. The Father reveals things to Peter. One day, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. Caesarea Philippi is a a Roman city. It's multi-ethnic, it's multicultural. people are worshiping all kinds of different gods. And it's in that city that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? So he's asking the disciples a question about what they believe to be Jesus' identity. And this is what Jesus says. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against, against it. So Peter was the first one, the first disciple to confess, you're the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. The Father revealed that to him. For Peter, in that moment, Jesus was real. Not only real, but the Son of the living God. That reality in his life, the reality of Jesus, the reality of his living relationship with Jesus, it changed the way that he saw God, the way that he saw life, the way that he saw himself. Now, he journeyed with Jesus. He was impulsive. Sometimes he was too self-confident. That day in Caesarea Philippi, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right after that, when Jesus says that he's going to go to the cross, Peter says, no, don't do that. That's not the way, Jesus. Don't talk that way. On the day when Jesus most needed him, the the day before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is, is praying and he needs Peter to be at his side. On that day, Peter denies him three times. Now, the Jesus that he confessed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, comes back to Peter. After Jesus' resurrection, he comes back to Peter at the, beside the Sea of Galilee. Peter is out fishing. And there, beside a fire, Jesus reminds Peter of his calling. He asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's restoring Peter to his calling and to his life purpose. And he says to Peter, well then, if you understand who I am and you love me, then feed my sheep. Gentiles are being added to the church. This is after Pentecost. And as people from other people groups are added to the church, Peter's Jewishness comes alive again. And again, the Lord has to speak to him through a vision and in other ways through the Apostle Paul. He needs a complete reorientation. He needs to understand what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to be a part of his people, the church. All of this to say that Peter's identity, it was formed by Jesus. 
He came to understand what it meant to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, to be owned by Jesus, to belong to him, to serve him, to have his identity grounded in the reality of what God had done in his life. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he writes this letter. This is in verse 1. He writes to the, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are Roman provinces. In, at that time, was known as Asia Minor. Today, it's the northern region of Turkey. Talks about the elect exiles. Some translations will put a comma between elect and exiles. That's not in the Greek original. But I believe that these two words, elect and exiles, are talking about the same group. And so this exile reality, it's saying something about the elect. The elect are the chosen, the select ones. Peter says that the elect are the Exiles, the word exiles, it was a word used in the Roman Empire for temporary residents. And so there were many Roman colonies, and people would move to different parts of the Roman Empire. Those that had moved to a place other than their birth, to a, to a new place, they were referred to as exiles. So often they were not Roman citizens, they had different customs, they had different practices, and they were called the exiles. The believers that Peter is writing to, it's not that they are literally exiles, that they are living away from their original homes, but this word exile is to say something about what they experience in daily life. They're scattered through this region, through these Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and they don't feel that they are at home. They're the elect exiles of the dispersion. That word dispersion was used only for Jews prior to the New Testament. What's meant by that? Well, you'll remember from the Old Testament that during the time of the Assyrian Empire, Israel went into captivity. They were exiled from Israel. During the Babylonian Empire, Judah went into exile, and so the Jewish people were scattered across these empires, and they understood themselves to be exiles, to not be at home. Their homeland was back in Israel. So Peter is using this word in this way. He's saying, you, as believers in Jesus, just as the Jews understood themselves to be exiles in the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, you now, in the Roman Empire, you understand yourself to be exiles, to not be living in your homeland. You actually have your citizenship in another place, in heaven, in the Father's house, and you feel like strangers. And it's okay. Peter writes this letter probably in the 60s, maybe, maybe the 70s. It's a, a letter written to Christians living in a world where other gods are being worshipped. In the Roman Empire, Greek and Roman gods are being worshipped. Gods like Eros, the goddess of love. Nike, we still worship Nike, right? We wear, at least during the week, we've got Nike on. Nike was the goddess of victory. Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Many gods and goddesses were being worshipped. The emperor was worshipped. 
These that are disciples of Jesus, they're not worshiping those gods anymore. They're not worshiping their emperor. They're saying that Jesus is their Lord. They have left these gods behind because these gods just have not satisfied. These gods have not answered their prayers. These gods have not provided hope and meaning for their lives. And so they have turned to Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. And there's not widespread persecution. There's not systematic persecution. But because they're followers of Jesus... In this world where many other gods are being worshipped, they're discriminated against. There's social pressure. In their families, they are slandered. They're often dishonored. You can see an example of this in the, the oldest pagan account, which refers to Christians. This, this letter was written in about 112 A.D., it was written by the Roman governor of Pontus and Bithynia, and so regions mentioned here by Peter. The governor's name was Pliny the Younger. There must have been a Pliny the Older because he's Pliny the Younger. Actually, he was educated by his uncle, Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Younger, he is wrestling with governance. What should he do with Christians? What should he do with those that are accused anonymously of being Christian? How should he judge? How should he treat them? So he writes to the emperor Trajan, nor am I sure at all, nor am I at all sure whether it is the mere name of Christian which is punishable, even if innocent of crime, or rather the crimes associated with the name. I have asked them in person if they are Christians. And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time, with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for punishment, for whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. Among these, I considered that I should dismiss any who denied that they were or ever had been Christians when they repeated after me a formula, formula of invocation to the gods and had made offerings of wine and incense to your statute and furthermore had cursed Christ, none of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. So Pliny, in his correspondence with Trajan, and Trajan also, they do not mention that the Christians have committed a crime. They're just going to trial because they're Christian. Pliny, he believes that there's no way that a Christian is going to recant, that a Christian is going to worship the Roman gods, that a Christian will curse Christ. But because they are not worshiping the Roman gods and are not swearing allegiance to the Roman Empire, emperor, they are suspect. Peter, when he writes his letter, he ends it by saying that he's writing from Babylon. He's not actually in Babylon. Babylon is a code name for Rome. So Peter is in Rome. He doesn't feel like he's at home. The Christians that are living, living in the provinces listed here, they don't feel like they're at home. This is a letter from the homeless to the homeless because they have their home in another place. First point in your outline. Our identity as God's chosen people is marked by a placement. By a placement to be strangers in the world. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been placed to be a stranger in the world. And if you feel like a stranger today, it's okay. Where do you get your identity from? 
Maybe you feel that you are on the margins. Maybe you are the only believer in your home. And in your own home, you feel like a stranger. Maybe you feel like a stranger in the workplace. Maybe you feel like a stranger on the street. Maybe you feel like a stranger on campus. You just see life differently. What you believe to be true, what you believe to be real, the way that you think, what you value, the way that you behave, your language, it's just different. And so you feel like a stranger. Just a word for you that are students. You know, every professor is a preacher. Just remember that. Every professor is a preacher. They're preaching based on what they believe to be real. And so just because they're saying it doesn't mean that it's true. If we are disciples of Jesus, we can be grounded in the scriptures, grounded in the reality of God, grounded in the truth of God's word, and walk in this day standing firm in the grace of God, secure in who we are in Jesus. Not overwhelmed by the messages that we're hearing because not everything that we hear is true. Where are we grounded? In the real world today, disciples of Jesus, they're often reviewed as, or viewed as naive. Have you ever experienced this? Like, do you not get it? Are you ignorant? Haven't you evolved with society? You actually believe in Jesus? My oldest daughter is a documentary filmmaker, and she was working on a film the other day and was in conversation with the director. And when the director discovered that she was a Christian, he looked at her and he said, you're a Christian? She said, yeah. Not the evangelical kind. She said, yeah. You go to church? Yeah. You believe in Jesus? Yeah. Oh, he couldn't believe it. He's like, you're educated and you believe in Jesus? You believe the story? So they had a rather lengthy conversation, and in their conversation, my daughter asked him, so okay, you don't believe in Jesus. What gives meaning to your life? What do you believe happens after death? And his response was, I just don't think about those things. She said, just a few minutes ago, you were treating me as if I was ignorant, and you don't have answers to these most basic questions? So sometimes people present themselves with tremendous arrogance, as if they have an insight that you don't have. People are preaching, but often there's very little substance behind the message. And so if you have heard the word of God, if you have met Jesus, if you have come to understand the grace of God in your lives, know that you are grounded in a reality far deeper and more profound than anything you will find out there. Stand firm in the true grace of God, Peter says to his disciples at the end of this letter. You know, sometimes people will 
treat us as if our personal ethic, the way that we value things, the way that we behave, our social ethic, it's just superseded that some will even treat us as if we're immoral, that we're unloving. So we need to know who we are in our day, in the 21st century. Listen to some of the questions that Peter's readers would have been asking. As we read through 1 Peter, we can just hear these questions being asked. Peter, we find ourselves on the margins. Did our conversion to Christ bring us any benefit? Peter, how does our faith in Jesus remain alive and vital in these difficult circumstances? Peter, What do we do when we're dishonored by people that we love, when we're dishonored in our own families? How do we deal with the shame? How do we relate to husbands who are decidedly non-Christian? Is there anything wrong with participating in the trade guilds? You know, we need to be in these guilds in order to secure our economic status. So is there anything wrong with compromising a bit? Peter, how are our families going to survive? Is this suffering necessary? Is there any purpose in it? Can't we compromise a bit? Where are we going to find the grace and the wisdom and the peace and the power to live in this day? In the real world, Peter. Well, Peter answers these questions and many others. He teaches his disciples that they, cannot only, they, they will not only survive, but they will actually thrive if they understand who they are in Jesus, and they will be a blessing. So back to that earlier question, where do these new disciples ground their identity? We see something beautiful in verse 2. The phrases that we read in verse 2, they're all connected to that introduction in verse 1 to those who are the elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God the Father, our Father in heaven, the sovereign one, the the intimate one, the all-powerful one, the present one, that Father, he has chosen them in his foreknowledge. So they're being disciples in the world that they live in. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. God has made a purposeful choice before the foundation of the world they were chosen. He chose Jesus to redeem them. Peter, in his first sermon in Jerusalem, this is after Pentecost, he uses that same word, foreknowledge, when he talks about Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Around the same time that Peter writes this letter, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes a letter to churches just south of the region that Peter's writing to. Paul writes this in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the basis of their election, the foundation of their election, the foundation of their redemption, it originates in the heart of the Father, in the heart of God. 
The Father chose them in his perfect plan. They've been drawn into a loving relationship with God. They haven't lost. They've been chosen. They are the select. So the second point on your outline there, our our identity as God's chosen people is marked by a plan, a definite plan according to the foreknowledge of the Father. We did nothing to merit this choosing. God didn't choose us because he forgot to open our file. We weren't chosen because of some merit in our lives. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees the darkest corners of our souls. And despite our sin, God in his grace has chosen us. We were chosen. Now, how is this election made operative? How how is it made effective? How does it happen in our lives? Well, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The choice of the Father, it's made effective in our lives by the Spirit. Jesus says no one can come to him except the person be drawn by the Father, and the Father draws us by the Spirit. We are drawn to Jesus. Jesus is revealed to us. We are convicted of our sin by the Spirit. We're quickened in our understanding of the gospel. We're led to trust in Jesus. We're regenerated. We're made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit sets us apart for holiness and we're transformed into the likeness of Christ by the Spirit. We belong to God. We're set apart for God and we become like him by the Spirit. So the third point, our identity as God's chosen people is marked by a process. It's marked by a process to be made holy by the Spirit. And not only that, we're chosen for a purpose, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so our election, it's evidenced by a life of faith. We confess Jesus as Lord, and then we follow him as Lord. We obey him. We're not called to some self-serving spirituality. We're called to follow a person, Jesus. So, fourth point in your outline, our identity as God's chosen people is marked by a purpose, to be obedient to Jesus' lordship. And then, for sprinkling with his blood, what does that mean? The words obedience and sprinkling, they actually refer to the same idea. This image of sprinkling, it comes from the Old Testament, from Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, the people of Israel, they have received the commandments of God, and now they're being asked the question, will you obey what you have received? And they respond, yes, we will. We will obey. And then to seal the bonded relationship with the Father, to seal the covenant, they're sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifices, the sacrifices of animals. So in our case, as disciples of Jesus, what does this look like? Well, the Father has chosen us. We've been invited to follow Jesus, to obey him. And our covenant with God the Father, this bonded relationship, it's sealed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So in summary, Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together to establish us in our identity, to secure us in who we are in Jesus, to enable us to live in this world. We're not people without a Father. We've been loved by the Father. We don't live apart from the presence of God. No, the Spirit of God himself abides in us. 
We aren't a people without a purpose. No, as disciples of Jesus, we have a wonderful purpose, an eternal purpose to live for God's glory and to be light in this society. And so before the foundation of the world, know that you were chosen to be a stranger in this day. No matter where you live, you may be living in Vancouver, in Burnaby, New West, North Vancouver, Coquitlam. There's a lot of different municipalities around here. But wherever you live, you may feel like a stranger, but know that you were chosen to be a stranger in this world. What does this look like? Let me tell you a story from another part of the world, but I think it just helps us understand how this truly becomes a reality for a person. A man by the name of A, he was from Southeast Asia, from a country that is hostile to many ethnic minorities living in that country, hostile to the Christian faith, He returned to his country of origin. He was sitting in a bus station and there was another man, B, obviously distraught. So he went over to B and asked him why he was so shaken. And B said, well, a number of my children have died in infancy and in the hospital right now is my daughter and it looks like she's going to die. And A asked him, well, do you know Jesus? No. He says, well, you need to know the Jesus that can heal you and can heal your child. So they went together over to the hospital, and A, he prayed for that child. The child was healed, and B, gave himself to Jesus, as did his family. So A needs to move on. B needs to go back to his remote village. In that village, he had been the village shaman. So he was the people that He was the person that people would come to for counsel, for healing. What does it mean for him to go back now as the disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? So A asks him, well, can you read? And B says, yeah. So A opens the Bible to the Gospel of John, and he says, B, I want you to read the Gospel of John, and uh, you just do what it says. Read it every day. Just do what it says. So, B goes back to his village with his Bible. A moves on. Two years later, they meet at a gathering for leaders. Now, B has a scar on his face. And A asks him, what happened? He says, well, over the last couple of years, I've been in prison three times for being a Christian. The last time that I was imprisoned, one of the guards, he took his rifle and hit me with the butt end of the rifle, broke my jaw. But the brothers came around and prayed for me, and I was healed. Well, what's happened in your village? Well, I read the Gospel of John, and I just tried to obey what Jesus was saying. And so I shared the message of Jesus with others, and about 800 people in my village have come to follow Jesus. Now, that story may feel like it comes from another realm, from another world. But what would happen in our world, the world that we live in, should we take the words of Jesus seriously and actually follow them, obey them? You see, B, he was a shaman. He was from an ethnic minority. He was being guided by other spirits. He came to faith in Jesus and realized 
that all of a sudden he had met the all-powerful God, the almighty God, the God that was actually sovereign over all things, this God that had chosen him from before the foundation of the world, this God that had selected him to be a stranger in this world today. He discovered that he could be made holy, that he could become like Jesus by the Spirit. He was chosen to be obedient. And so as he read the word, as he read the words of Jesus, he heard the word of Jesus for his own life, and he just obeyed. And out of the fullness of his heart, he shared with others the loving message of Jesus. So what would happen in our world? What's considered to be the real world? Should we hear the word of God and obey it? question for you. Would you say that B is living a blessed life? Peter, when he ends his letter, he says, um, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Sorry, now he ends his greeting. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May, may you experience grace and peace in abundance. May you be overwhelmed by it. What is grace? A, a commentator by the name of Cranfield has defined grace in this way. Grace signifies God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. That's a good summary. You see, grace is at the essence of our salvation. All of the unmerited free gifts that are ours in Jesus. We have been saved by the grace of God from sin, evil, and death. By grace. By grace, the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident in our lives. We receive gifts of the Spirit by grace. And so the grace of God is extended through us as we serve Jesus in the world today. When we suffer and we remain faithful, it's by the grace of God. You see, the Christian life from beginning to end is bathed in grace. Peter has experienced so much grace from Jesus, and he wants his readers to experience that same grace. The end of his letter, he says, stand firm in the true grace of God. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What what kind of peace is that? The word peace there, it doesn't refer to the absence of conflict. So sometimes we think, okay, we're at peace. We're, we're, we're now in different rooms. We're not fighting. We're at peace. No, that's not what it is. The peace that he talks about here is ours because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because of Jesus, we're at peace with God. Because we're at peace with God, Jesus himself is our peace. He abides in us by the Spirit And if we're at peace with God, then we can be at peace with ourselves. We don't need to fight to secure our identity anymore because we're rooted in God. There is no other reality more profound, more real. God himself grounds us. So we're at peace with God, at peace with ourselves, and we can be at peace with others. Our identity as God's chosen people is marked by a plenitude to be smothered in God's grace and peace. If you're experiencing that grace and peace, you not only survive, you thrive, and you are a blessing. At the end of his letter, Peter writes, 
I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And he also adds, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, we can probably receive the grace and the peace rather easily this morning. For some of you, the kiss of love would be a real stretch. And now you're all nervous. Is Pastor Ray going to ask us to kiss each other? I would never do that. What's Peter saying? Well, we're strangers in the world. But here, in the family of faith as disciples of Jesus, we need to be family for each other. We may not feel like we're at home out there, but when we're together as God's people, then we are to feel at home. And we are to express affection to one another. Extend grace and peace to one another in the name of Jesus. So let's stand up. And I'd encourage you to say to the person next to you, grace to you, peace to you. And before you run out, let's pray. Father, even as we hear each other saying grace and peace, Lord, may we truly experience your grace and peace. Thank you, Father, that you have drawn us to yourself. Thank you that you chose us from before the foundation of the world. God, may we understand what it means to have our identity grounded in you and your choosing. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus for our salvation. Thank you that we have been chosen to be obedient to you, Jesus. Thank you that you're present by your Spirit right now and that you will remain with us throughout the week. Thank you that you never leave us. Lord, may we continue to surrender to the ongoing work of your Spirit in our lives. You desire to make us like yourself. So, may your work continue. Forgive us for those moments when we so easily stray, as we prayed earlier in this service, and we think that we can find life in other places, and we try to secure our identity in other, way, other ways. We run after so many things. Father, may we rest in you, know you, abide in you, May we abide in your word. It's your word that will set us free. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us, that you have saved us, that you have sent your spirit to live in us. Thank you for the purpose that you have given us to live for your glory. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, Father, may your grace and peace be theirs in abundance May they be overwhelmed by your goodness, by your grace, by your love, by your peace. This day, this week. And may it all be for your glory, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.